The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, we've been kind of hanging out in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, this prayer that I just read, and we're going to do that this morning. In fact, uh, I was asking God to show me the end of the series, uh, Limitless Love. I'm like, where are we going with this, Lord? And uh, I feel like he said, I want you to at least spend four weeks exploring these dimensions in this prayer. In 18, verse 18, it says that, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. It's three-dimensional aspects of Christ's love. And I felt like he was saying, I want you to at least hang out right there. And so I want to take a little bit of time this morning for us to comprehend and experience the width of God's love, the breadth of God's love. Now, the passage says, he's praying that we would have the ability, the strength to comprehend, so to get our minds around, and so there's some understanding, but also to experience. There's a big difference between being told something and experiencing it for yourself, isn't there? I'll illustrate. Uh, Tiffany, my beautiful wife of coming up on 20 years, has historically done the majority of the housework in our relationship. I had a little uh, eye-opening experience three or four years ago to recognize that it was not her role or her job to do all of the chores. And so I started taking on more and more uh, housework and just trying to be helpful. Now, she's obviously better at it than I am. I destroy a lot of clothes trying to do laundry. God help me. But I'm trying to do my part. And one of these things that clicked for me to understand the difference between knowing something and experiencing something for yourself was, you know, we have four kids and we try to contain all the eating to like the bar top in the kitchen and then the dining room table, which are about 12, 15 feet apart. And so we're always saying, okay, no, we're not eating on the couch. We're not eating on the couch. We're not eating in our bedrooms. No, don't leave an apple core in the basement. Everybody, we're gonna eat, right? This is what we're gonna eat. And, um, and we have four kids ages four to 12. And, and so they just create a, an enormous mess everywhere they go all the time. My son, Julian, every morning he wants a Nutri-Grain bar. Anybody eat Nutri-Grain bars? I don't understand. I need to have a conversation with the maker of the Nutri-Grain bar. I don't know why they put useless wheat germ loosely on the top of every Nutri-Grain bar. And so every morning he's like, dust that right off. Get that gross stuff off of there. I'm like, can we just not put that on there? I'm sure there's like a step involved in putting the wheat germ on top of the Nutri-Grain bar. And it just gets dusted off wherever he happens to be eating, usually not over a plate. And so there's like just a, just a mess of food. And so we try to contain the food to certain places. And um, I, I observe this happening, like right after Tiffany will have cleaned our entire house. It's a big house, four kids, room for everybody. And so she'll clean everything. And then the kids will like immediately go to like making some enormous like popcorn mess. And there's just popcorn everywhere. And she'll be like, guys, just clean, pick up the popcorn. And as the endearing dad of the house who does less housework, I'm like, dad, just kids, sweep it up, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then um, recently I took it upon myself while she was out now working full-time for the church, by the way, you're welcome. Uh, she, uh, yeah, yeah, you can clap for that. She's basically, you may not realize this. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but in August, we lost uh, a staff member. And so all of the director position of Christchurch Kids became available. And that, when that means became available, means uh, no one was there to do it. And if it wasn't for Tiffany stepping in to fulfill that role, and she's doing a phenomenal job, not only would everything kind of come to a screeching halt, but you would all be holding your children right now. That's what would be happening in the service. So if you're enjoying not having to have your children, except the ones who want to be in here, uh, you can thank Tiffany before you leave. Anyway, so she's working. I take it upon myself to clean the house. And I'm like, I vacuum the whole, sweep up, vacuum the whole house, mop the whole house. And um, it's exhausting. And then I come into the kitchen and there's Julian with a Nutri-Grain bar. <laughs> and didn't ask and he commences to the dusting process. 
And I found myself going, bud, I just vacuumed and mopped. And I was like, whoa, Tiffany just came out. What, ha what just happened here? I have never said those words in my life before. Never have I uttered, I just vacuumed and mopped. But there's a big difference between when you're the one who just did the work and you just watch somebody do the work, your reaction to the wheat germ dust. Let me tell you something. So there's a big difference between understanding something and experiencing it for yourself. Can I get amen? Amen. Well, anybody that's been walking with God for any period of time, you know that there's been intersections in your life when you've encountered the presence of God in such a way that it pivoted the course of your life. And it's something that you can't conjure. You can't talk about it enough. You can't explain it to people. It's an experience that you have, but it's one that is, is life-altering. Can I get a raise of hands if you ever have had that experience? Yeah, and some of you are like, nope, not yet. We'll buckle up. And so here I am uh, attempting this morning to expand your mind, your ability to comprehend a dimension, one dimension of Christ's love for, for you, for the whole world, what, what emanates from his heart. And so we can talk about what that means. I can show you in the scriptures what it says. I can try to illustrate it and describe it to you and give you handles to hold on to it. But I cannot in any way allow you to experience what you have to experience for yourself. There's nothing that I can say or do that is going to usher in the power and presence of God into your heart and mind in a way that requires strength to endure. There's, there's nothing I can do for you to experience it. And so I, I've been making this prayer of Paul's my prayer for you because I realize I'm only bringing half of the ingredients to the table this morning. And yet at the same time, I'm confident that we don't, we don't need to do gimme tricks and we don't need to play funny, funky music. And we don't, we don't have to have light shows and fog machines uh, we don't need any of the things that we commonly guise with. We'll do anything short of sin to see people enter the kingdom of heaven because really it's the word of God attended by the spirit of God. When people come into the presence of God, that the power of God is manifested. Do you realize that? That can happen in a tent, in a field. That can happen under a tree. That can happen in a garden. That can happen anywhere where you, with a, a humble and sincere heart, you come into the presence of God and say, I am open and willing and hungry would you, and buckle up when he says, oh yeah, oh yeah, I will. And so I just want to encourage and admonish everybody to have a willingness. Now you may be nervous, you may be afraid, you maybe have some reservations, you may have some like, you know, stoic pride. You're like, I don't want to, I don't want to fall apart emotionally in this space, <laughs> you know? I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to, maybe I don't even want to let go of the control of the outcome of my life. Maybe you're here looking for God to add something to you, but you're willing to hold on to everything else that you've got. And he's saying, no, I want you to kind of bring it all right here. And that's scary, isn't it? But I'm just here to tell you and to testify to you this morning that you will never, ever regret coming into God's presence open-handed. You have, you'll never regret letting go of the things you cling tightly to in order to receive the good things that God wants to give you. And so I, I enter into a few minutes of explanation, expecting and pleading with God that we would have an experience of his power. And so let's examine the breadth of Christ's love. In my own mind, when I started to think through how wide is God's love, I thought to myself, we don't have a lot of conversations about how wide things are. It's not a typical explainer. I do because my son is four and he's fascinated with the dimensions of everything. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Julian's like, he's really big into fire trucks and fire ladders and he always wants to know, how high up does that ladder go? 
but he's never satisfied until you give him a number. How far is that? We'll walk past the hole. We have construction going on. They're doing gas lines in our neighborhood and they're digging holes. How far is it down there? I'm like, buddy, I don't know. How far is it? It's, I mean, you can see it. It's that deep. Just tell me, dad. He goes, just tell me. And I'm like, five feet. Five feet? Yep. Cool. And he has no reference for five feet at all. How wide is that? How big is that? How deep is that? How tall is that? He's always asking me these questions. And I wonder if God's kind of intersecting this portion of his life with what he's doing in my heart spiritually in this passage to just continue to iterate it in my mind. How big? How wide? How tall? How long? How deep? And I want to be just as fascinated with the dimensions of God's love for me and for you and for the world as Julian is with fire trucks and holes and tractors and cranes. Amen? Amen. When uh, Evie was little, uh, the, ho- the old Hobby Lobby had just opened. It's amazing how fast things open and close. And they, uh, they knocked down the Barnes & Noble and they put up a Wawa. Did you guys see that on International Speedway Boulevard? Remember Barnes & Noble, the old one? When I was a teenager, that was the only thing opened after nine o'clock. I mean, I spent most of my late evenings at the Barnes and closing out the Barnes and Noble. Now it's a Wawa. Everything's a Wawa. But when the Hobby Lobby uh, next to Home Depot first opened, we were in there with Evie and she was just little. She was like younger than two. She was a talker. She talked really early. And um, so we were walking around Hobby Lobby with her and she was our only one. Life was easy. Wow. Didn't realize at the time. And uh, we were walking around and there was a, a rather enormous individual in like a, a cart and um, we walked around the corner and she goes, do you see how big his belly is? <laughs> and um, you don't typically want to talk about, it's kind of faux pas in our, in our culture to talk about people's breadth, isn't it? You know, like we don't talk about that. It's, it's like not off limits if you're thin. Everyone doesn't mind talking about me being thin. There's no like low side of the breadth conversation, but at some point we go, mm, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. And um, so we pulled her around the corner and we were like, hey, hey, Evie. Baby, we were like, we noticed that you notice everything and you see things and that got your attention. That's totally understandable. But babe, we don't, we don't talk about how big people's bellies are, okay? Oh, oh, okay. So we walk around the corner and a few minutes later intersect said person. And as she walks by, she's really quiet and her eyes get kind of big. And then she goes, she goes, we do not talk about how big people's bellies are. Should have waited till we got home for that conversation too soon. Well, I want us to like wipe away the faux pas on width and just think for a second about the parameters of Christ's love. You'll not find anything wider. It is a wide load. When I think about it and I meditate upon it, kind of three categories come up to me. And one, one is the breadth of his love as ability. Scriptures come into my mind about God's capacity, about his power, about the scope of his love that uh, is able. And so I turn my attention and my heart to meditate upon his love as ability. And instantly, Psalm 103 came to my mind, maybe it did for you too, Psalm 103, verses eight to 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That saying about the nature and character of God is proliferated throughout the entirety of scripture. You'll read it in all different books of the Bible again and again and again in the Psalms. A version of this, the, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in 
and loving kindness in some translations. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, and this is something of the height, which I'm sure we'll get back into, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Look at verse 12. Look what his love is capable of. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. One of the challenges of being an Old Testament Israelite was that you were regularly and cyclically experiencing the judgment of God. Israel needed a new heart. Israel was a knuckle-headed people, a stiff-necked people, a people who consistently went away from God after idols, looked to the culture to take its cues, and then believed in what everybody else appeared to believe in, hoping that that was a course that would lead to life only to experience God's judgment, usually in the form of an attacking army and a defeat in battle. And so it's rather confusing for the Israelites to hold on to the love of God when in fact their countrymen are slaughtered because of their own unbelief. You can imagine the difficulty. You thought you had it rough. And so here is the psalmist considering the nature and character of God. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in fact, he does chide and his anger does come and his wrath does come, but those things are not what prevails. What prevails is his love. He's always willing to take us back. He's always willing to welcome us. He's always willing to forgive. And what gets in the way of our closeness with God happens to be our very own transgressions. And yet, how are those transgressions absolved? How can God be so willing to take us back when we're repentant, but we've still done wrong in our own lives, in our own heart, and our sins have caused destruction for the generations after us and have caused harm in the world? What is to happen with those transgressions? This is the question for the psalmist, and the answer is the power of God's love in the place of transgressions does a separating move to send them in the opposite direction from you, never to be seen again. How wide is God's love? It separates us from that which separates us from God as far as east is from west. I mean, directionally talking here, now this is obviously linear. Some of you very smart intellectual people are thinking, well, eventually they're going to come back around and meet on the other side of the earth. We're glad you're here too, nerd. (laughs) The idea is that these two things are going in opposite directions, never to be seen again. They do not come back to each other. Do you understand what God has done here? And now this was made real in the person in, in the life of Jesus. Like how does God absolve transgressions? How does God take away wrath? How does God separate us in this parameter of east from west? What happens when Christ bears away our sins, when he becomes a substitute, when he becomes our savior? when by faith we're joined to him and we receive his life-giving spirit, when we become the righteousness of God because he became sin for us. That's how transgressions disappear. That's how iniquities are absolved. That is how the the width of God's love begins to be experienced. I love too that it's not just about what God can do. It's about why God does it. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isn't it funny how um, we just generally have less compassion for other people's children? 
This is, not, this is like another thing we don't talk about. <laughs> you ever notice how some of your friend's kid's voice just makes you crazy? I'm not naming names. I'm just saying, sometimes you're just like, oh, I could not listen to that all day. Well, guess what? Your kid's voice <laughs> might drive them crazy. See, God does this beautiful thing where he, he makes our children after our image. Even in adoption situations, I've seen this. There's this compassion, there's this love, there's this connection between parents and children that's a gift from God. You can destroy it, you can squish it, you can smoke enough mess to throw it away, you can, you can uh, just completely abolish it, but it's a beautiful gift from God that's usually there. And so here we have this compassion and, and God saying, you know that little taste of like how a father cares about his own child and is compassionate in a situation where there should be maybe justice and mercy lends towards mercy because he cares about his son or his daughter and he wants them to do well. This is what God feels like towards you. And that's a beautiful picture. And I remember when um, Tiffany was pregnant with Meredith, our second daughter, I remember having this feeling um, that you don't know what to expect when your first child is born. Maybe some of you are here and you're like staring down the whole child childbearing things in, the, in your future. Maybe you have an infertility struggle. I don't know what your situation is, but you don't know what to expect. It's like all exciting, but it's all unknown. And so you go into having children or adopting children and um, this miracle happens. You, you wonder how in the world you're going to bring a human into this world, how you're going to watch and care for that human being for their whole entire life. You're never off duty. Uh, you're on 100% of the time. But what happens is when, when, when you're given that child or that child is placed into your hands, a new love pops up in your heart. I remember experiencing this. I'm not like a big crier, but um, when I held Genevieve for the first time, our firstborn, I, l- I literally felt overwhelmed with a new love. I felt like the Grinch in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And I felt that. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to now divide that love that I have for my daughter with more children? And what's it going to be like when I have this other child? And will I love them the same or will it be different? And how's this going to feel? Anybody ever felt those feelings? Please say yes. <laughs> I'm so vulnerable right now. And so, and so I'm having these feelings and it was amazing when Meredith was born and I held her for the first time, the love wasn't divided, it was multiplied. And the same thing happened with number three and then number four. And then I was so scared that I would feel that again that we decided not to have any more children. <laughs> I was like, <clears throat> my heart is full, but my bank is empty, so I've got to do something. But God does this multiplying work. And I think it's easy for us to begin to think through God's capacity to save and his capacity to love. There's like nobody off limits. We talked about this last week. Because of the nature of who God is in Christ and the and the the power of his crucifixion and resurrection, his role as our, as our mediator, our high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews 7 says. There's nobody too far from God. Do you understand that? He's infinite in his ability to save and to collect and to gather up. And this is what he's busy doing. And so we might go intellectually assent to the idea of, yeah, he is capable. He's God after all. He could save anybody he wants to. And he can then gives way to the question, but does he want to love me? How does he feel about me? And unfortunately, most of us exist 
with this inner self-critic, usually taking on the voice of a criticizing parent or grandparent or middle school teacher or high school bully or ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. And there's an insecurity in us that feels less than. We do our best not to talk about it or let it show, but it can drive us and it can drive us away from things that are good for us and it can drive us to things that are harmful for us because we're seeking security and acceptance and significance and we wonder if it's there. And the questions that continue to be asked make us wonder if God actually feels that way. And for whatever reason, we're really, really good at filling in the blank with the negative. Oh, God's not going to forgive you this time. Too many times. Remember last time you said it was the last time? You did it again. Three strikes, you're out, pal. No one would love you if they knew who you really were, if they knew how you really felt about things, or if they knew this about you. And so we have an enemy who's happy to lob those accusations at you, who's happy to cut down your sense of self-worth as long as it keeps you from coming to God. But the reality is, is that God not only has love for you that has the capacity to remove every obstacle to reunite us in Christ, but the breadth of his love is also expressed in the scriptures in the form of desire. Do you know that? He loves you and he feels it. He feels it. When God looks at you, he feels it. I had the opportunity to co-preach uh, with Pastor Jason from First Baptist to our youth this past uh, Wednesday at Fusion Night. All the youth from five or six different churches gathered, and I'd never co-preached before. I was actually a little nervous. I'm not used to doing any, like half the talking. <laughs> Some people are like, I'm so scared to give a speech. I'm like scared to shut up. <laughs> like, what happens now when I just sit here? This is weird. So we, uh, but we did that, and we were trying to get through John chapter 11, which is the Lazarus story. Uh, Lazarus is kind of famous for uh, dying twice. You remember him? Uh, he dies, and then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He comes out of the tomb. But it's set in this very dynamic and epic chapter. It's kind of like the, the big moment that, that needs resolve, that the end of the book resolves. I told the kids, it's kind of like you've never seen Star Wars before, and you turn on Star Wars, and it's right as the Death Star destroys Alderaan. You're like, whoa, we need some backstory here. What just happened? Well, that's the Lazarus story. And John writes for us the story in such dynamic and powerful ways to not only put on display God's power. I mean, here we have this signs, the seventh of seven signs John records. He says in chapter 20 that Jesus did so many signs in the presence of the disciples. He says, but these were recorded that you may believe. And so he put these together on purpose. And this is the seventh of seven signs in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel. And it's the big one. And he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. But he doesn't just show up and do it. He's hiding out because the Jews want to kill him, and he's around the corner, around the Jordan in Perea, and he gets the news that Lazarus, whom he loves, is very ill. Now, Lazarus was brother of Mary and Martha, who feature elsewhere in the Gospels. These three siblings appear to be parentless uh, and entrepreneurial. They, they host a lot of things. They probably have some wealth, and uh, they're very precious to Jesus. He loves them very much, and it says that they, he gets this report about Lazarus being ill, and the passage reads, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus dearly. And so when he heard the news, he waited two days. He literally waits for Lazarus to die. Now he knows he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. And that happens at the end of the chapter. But nobody else knows this, right? Now, if anybody has an excuse not to go into the danger zone, it's Jesus. He literally has a, a hit out on him. If he shows up in Jerusalem or in Bethany near Jerusalem, he's likely to be arrested and killed. So everyone's like, yeah, obviously Jesus would like to go heal Lazarus who is ill, but he can't because he'll be killed. And so it's a dilemma, but everybody gives Jesus the, the, the grace card because of course, 
But then two days goes by and he's like, all right, let's go. And they're like, oh, now? Like, why would we go now? Like, if we were gonna go, wouldn't we have gone then? So now we're gonna go when it's likely you can't do anything, but you could also still get killed. So everybody's confused. And then Jesus, knowing what he's gonna do, he, he starts this journey. And as he comes towards Bethany, the people who've already found out Lazarus is dead, the news has traveled and the news reaches Jesus before Jesus reaches Bethany. So Jesus hears that Lazarus is dead. He already knew he was dead. He told the disciples he was dead. Everybody's confused. Jesus seems happy that Lazarus is dead. He has some purpose in it. Everybody thinks they're gonna get, all the disciples think they're gonna get killed. And here come Lazarus's sisters and they're mad as hell. Seriously, read the chapter. It's very dynamic. Martha, Martha, she's the strategic smart one. She's very blunt. So she, as soon as she hears Jesus, she like, she realizes Jesus could get sniped. And so she slips out. And then she goes over, finds Jesus, and she's like, if you had been here, he wouldn't be dead right now. Any got any ladies in the house that would have said it just like that? Listen, boy, you got, you got some nerve showing your face at this point because we know that you would have healed him if you were here. So what gives? Do you, you ever come to God that way? You don't know what he had planned, but you're mad about the way it went down. That's Martha. Well, then... He has this interaction with her, which is where we get one of the seven I am sayings of Jesus in John. Your brother will rise again, which could sound like a cliche. Like, I know he's dead. It's hard. He'll rise again. He's gone to a better place. You'll see him again someday. Does not help. Those things do not help, do they? But she doesn't know whether to take it as a cliche or not. So she's like, I know you could have healed him. And I know now anything you ask of the father, he'll do for you. So she's got, she's like pushing the limits of her faith in the middle of a difficult circumstance. And this is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am personifying the power of new life. And wherever I go, dead things come to life. But he hasn't done anything yet. And then Mary, she's kind of the drama queen sister. Do you have a drama queen sister? Very emotional. She's like, hey, Jesus is here. Jesus is here in front of everyone. You're like, okay. Then she just like runs out of the house and everyone's like, I guess she's gonna go see Jesus. We'll just follow her, including those who want Jesus dead. And then she gets to Jesus and she falls down at his feet weeping. Jesus, oh my God. And she says the same thing Martha said. She just says it very differently. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, at this point, Jesus has not even made his way to the tomb. He's had this interaction with Mary and Martha. Now, I'm no Jesus. Ask the people who know me best. But if I were Jesus, I would have taken the opportunity with these two distraught sisters to say, girls, I've got a plan. It's going to be okay. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't. He walks with them. He's like, let's go. Let's go to the funeral. Let's go to the graveside. They're weeping, they're angry, they're all raw. Everybody can't believe it. What is Jesus doing here? Why now? Why the delay? What is going on? Their minds are blown, their hearts are broken. And he just moves to the tomb. And the closer he gets to the tomb, and the more he encounters people who love Lazarus and are grieving for the pain of death, says he was moved deeply. And in the longest section of John 11, we get the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. And that's ugly tears weep. That's, there's not a good English word. It's not Jesus was like, 
saline drop movie tear. What a heroic man who had an emotional break in sadness. No, this is wailing, weeping, just snotty, gross, get the man a tissue, weeping. This is the picture there. Do you, do you understand the, the depth of emotional love Jesus has for Lazarus who has died because Jesus came to abolish death, he hates death, but also for the sisters who've lost their brother and the pain they're experiencing in that moment and all these people grieving this loss, all of these people who are living in a broken world that is characterized by sickness and death and loss and that power of the enemy, all the things Jesus came to save the world from and he joins them in it without being in a hurry. He's moved emotionally. And people wonder if God loves them. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the father loves us. Hmm. He has a desire. He has the ability and he has the desire. Whenever you imagine Jesus having the stone rolled away from the tomb and saying the powerful words, Lazarus, come forth. You, I imagine this kind of like triumphant Jesus. I don't know if you do or not. I use my imagination when I read the Bible and I try to picture it. I try to put myself in the scene. And when I read, every time I read the Bible, because I've learned more things and seen more things, the scenes change. And I'm like a director. I'm like, no, 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 Jesus. That's too much, too triumphant. You've, you've been ugly crying you need puffy eyes. You need red puffy eyes before you say this. You understand? And so the scene changes. And here's Jesus with a heart filled with compassion, moved out of a deep love, not just for Lazarus, but for broken, dying humanity who he came to save. Even, even those who nailed his hands into the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even as he looked into the future when the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed for crucifying the Son of God in AD 70, and he wept over the city of Jerusalem, had they but known who was sent to them, I would have gathered them like a, like a hen under my wings. I would have collected them to protect them. And now they're going to experience this judgment of God, Jesus prayed, Matthew 24. So God not only has love that has power, resurrection power, but he's moved in his heart with desire. Jesus tried so hard to communicate this every time he taught. I don't know if you realize this or not. The, the, the religious types are always trying to sort out the good people and the bad people. There's always, and that's happening in our world right now, by the way. It's one of the things that makes me so sick and so angry when I turn on the news or I listen to anything. There's this immediate division. There's the good people and the bad people. And now it's even like a diversion. Oh, I better not. Woo. That's not going to be helpful at all. You just need to not go down that road. The, the Pharisees did the same thing, though. They saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. What are, what are you doing, Jesus? Like, these are the enemies. These are the people that are messing this up for everyone. We're expecting God to come make Israel number one on the earth and dwell from Jerusalem. We're the gatekeepers. We're the ones holding the throne. We're the ones trying to make the scriptures uh, known to everyone and applied so everyone does the right thing and there's this revival. And you're over here eating with tax collectors and sinners. What are you doing? There's indignation because of this compassion that Jesus has and his willingness to associate with people on the margins of polite society. What are you doing? And in Luke chapter 15, he, and so he told them this parable. In fact, it was three. He tells them a story about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. You remember it? Yeah. He says, listen, 
a lost sheep. I'm a shepherd. I'm a keeper of somebody else's sheep. My reputation is on the line and I don't lose stuff. And so I'm going to, I'm going to justify my own nature by being faithful to my promise. So this matters. And not only that, it's not only this value that's there, that's connected to who I am. He says, there's this coin. This would, this would have been coins are, you guys lose, you have change all over your house. We, coins are worth so little. I don't even keep them in my pockets anymore. Remember you used to carry change because you could buy stuff with them. Now you're like, I'm going to get a Coke, $2.50. Ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. Too many quarters. And now you can swipe. You don't even carry change. But these coins, these were like the bride price. This was like a, this was like a family heirloom, these 10 coins. Oftentimes they're worn as jewelry, as a necklace or a headpiece. And if one of those popped out, it's, you can't get another one. That was your mom's or your grandmother's or your great-grandmother's. And so the picture there is this woman sweeps the house. She's so excited when she finds it, she throws a party that costs more than the value of the coin. It's irreplaceable. And so Jesus is telling these parables in succession to say, listen, here's how I feel about the people you are accusing me of messing things up by eating with. They are my precious and irreplaceable children. That's who they are. That's why I'm eating with them. That's why it's precious to me when I say to Matthew at the tax booth, follow me. And he gets up and leaves everything to follow Jesus. So he tells the story of the prodigal son. Total screw up. The worst kind of Jewish son you could ever imagine. It's the kind of thing that you tell your kids, whatever you do, don't grow up to be like him. He tells the story and he just tells it in hyperbole. It's the, it's the softest, kindest, most compassionate father, Jewish father that never existed and this terrible, awful, treacherous, traitor son who never would have existed. And he, he puts the two of these together in the story. And then when the son runs out in such bad shape that he realizes how broken and how messed up he is and how awful it is and how good his father is and how great it is to be in his father's presence and how wonderful it would be just to be a servant in his father's house, he decides in repentance to make a direction home, even trying to self justify and hoping to grovel. And the picture Jesus paints is something that would never happen. The father is looking for the son. He's been on the front porch every night for who knows how many years, waiting for the day. Every traveler that passed by the road, he examined to compare to the silhouette in his mind of what his boy would look like coming home every day by a longing for something precious to him that was lost. And then the day comes and he looks to see a lone figure and he knows that walk and he knows that shape. And he doesn't care where he's been, what he's done, what he looks like, what he smells like. And he takes off running, something a good Jewish man would never do, by the way. And when he gets to him, he wraps his arms around him and he kisses him all over his face. He's weeping and sobbing. Jesus paints this picture of this radical fatherly love that eliminates all transgressions and welcomes home. He says, that's how I feel about every child of mine. Now the question is, will you come in and party with us? That's how the story ends. And so we see the love of God and his ability to save. And the question, do you believe it? And if so, what about his desire to save? And he makes that point clear. And then lastly, and I'll close with this, we examine the breadth of God's love as calling because it's possible for us 
to agree with the power of God and his capacity to save all people. Yeah, he can save anything, any, anyone, any situation. There's nothing he won't forgive, can't forgive. My Jesus can save anyone. Yeah, great. And I understand his heart. He's moved to do so. He's not reluctant. He's not holding back. He's not, he's not evaluating. He's not putting anybody on probation. He loves everybody. But then we can get to the question of what about me? And for some reason, there's still a check on the inside of us that says, but not me, but not me. I can see why he would love other people, but not me. Most of us are not bold enough to say that out loud. But one of the most beautiful parts about the story of God's love in this book, in these 66 books that tell a beautiful tale, that encapsulate 3,000 plus years, that reveal the nature and heart of God, is that he is the God who calls names. Do you know that? You know what got my attention when I was 18 years old and on, on the precipice of going in two directions with my life, having had a whole experience as a child growing up in the church, knowing all kinds of true stuff about God, but not feeling satisfied or welcomed or wanted or valuable or had any purpose at all. And yet there being a whole world of things I had said no to that looked pretty stinking fun. And I got to the edge and I just said, God, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what you're doing. Like I, all the stuff I believe about you, I haven't experienced that. But if, if you're real and this is true, then I, I have to know that there's something better that you want from me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm open-handed. I'm, I'm willing to go all in. Now, that was a disposition. Do you see that? That was just a disposition. But that wasn't what changed my heart. Having an open disposition for a minute does not change hearts. Listen, I'm a pastor. I've talked to lots of people in terrible situations who are pretty willing to scope out change. And then they get a payday loan or somebody gives them a ride or a new situation opens up and they're like, okay, never mind. I'm good for a little while and they go on to the next journey. And so I've seen great moments wasted and moved on from. You know what changed that moment for me? It wasn't my disposition. It was the call of God. He said, Jesse, this is for you. He called me by name. And that is what he does for every single person who will listen. This is not a general, generic power of God. This is not love that has capacity to reach you. This is not love that God feels generically towards all people. This is a love that God has specifically for you. Do you know that when God sees you, he likes what he sees? We've been listening to too many people for too long that say we're not enough this and we're too much that and if we could just stop this or we need to get this in gear and if we're only here and if you have so much potential, that's not what God sees. He says, I'm seeing you right where you're at. I'm seeing you right how you feel, what you've done, what you've experienced, what's happened to you. I see you in this moment in space time and I love you and I'm inviting you. Would you join me in this love? Will you abide in this love? Will you remain? Will you come in to this love? It's a personal invitation. I'm struck. I'm struck by uh, Matthew chapter 9. I mentioned it already, but Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, is where Matthew records the calling of Matthew as a disciple. And it's one of those passages that's just one verse long, and you could easily read past it. You probably have. But I challenge you to go back and, and read Matthew Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount, which is pretty cool, chapter five, six, and seven. 
But in chapter eight, Matthew starts recording these incredible miracles. Jesus heals a paralytic. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Jesus calms a storm. Jesus, miracle, 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 this whole section. And then you get past chapter nine and chapter 10, miracle, 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 before Jesus starts teaching again. And you know what Matthew puts as the center miracle of his miracle section of his gospel? Chapter nine, verse nine. And Jesus passed on from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He's a traitor. He's a sellout. He's an extortionist. He's colluded with the oppressing enemy against his own people. This is a guy that did not get invited to Thanksgiving dinner right here. Not that they had Thanksgiving dinner. You know what I mean? Passover, call it what you will. He's, he's outside of polite society. His only friends are other creepers like him. You understand? Super rich, no friends. Hated by everybody. Probably drinks himself to sleep every night. Seriously. And Jesus passes by the tax booth. Now I have to imagine this interaction. I would imagine Matthew, not super confident dude, not, not an eye contact kind of a guy. Here comes Jesus. There he is. And lo and behold, much to his surprise, Jesus is walking in his direction. And I can imagine Matthew looking next to him and behind him and like, what? Why are you, wait, what, what are you, what are you, what are you coming over here for? And then Jesus locks eyes with him. Matthew, I pick you. Follow me. Now he's not asking for directions. When Jesus, you have, to, you have to remember this, Jesus had hundreds of followers, hundreds of women followers. All of his financiers were women. Did you know that? Jesus, didn't, he had a, a rabble of people that did not fit any stereotype, but he also was commissioned by God to pick 12 men to constitute a new Israel. Do you know this? We have the patriarchs, we have the 12 sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Israel. These are the tribes. And now he, he purposely picks 12 men. Remember Joseph, the, the brother, dream coat, all that whole thing. And then he ends up with the two sons, Ephraim, Manasseh, and there's a switching. So you end up losing Judas, but you get Matthias and you get Apostle Paul. It's, it's just mimicking exactly everything that happened in the Bible. And so Jesus has to pick 12 men, including a traitor. And he picks Matthew. He had already picked Simon the Zealot, who had been in prison for trying to kill people like Matthew. So this is like, I am gonna be, I'm gonna start something new and I'm gonna to put together a cabinet and I'm gonna pick Stacey Abrams and Ben Shapiro. Those are my people I'm going after. Like you, you, you pick the opposites. And, and here's Matthew. Do you know what Matthew means? His name was Levi, we're told elsewhere, which was the, the tribe of those set apart. Yeah, set apart, obviously, that's some hyperbole. You know what Jesus calls him Matthew? You know what Matthew means? It means the gift of God. I guarantee you never felt like a gift. Never. But Jesus called him. Now listen, I, I can't create an environment where you hear the voice of God calling your name. If I could, I would. But I'm here to tell you that God's honest truth is that God loves you with such a powerful love that there's nothing he can't overcome. It's so wide. As far as east from west, he separates everything that is an obstacle between you and him. 
And that's motivated by a desire, a longing, a will, and a wish that you would come to be his and be restored and forgiven and become the object of his love in your own experience. And I can tell you that he is speaking your name. And I wonder if in your spirit you hear it. I can't, I would, I would spend all afternoon and I would just go around and say every one of your names just so you could hear your own name being spoken. God's calling your name. He loves you, not y'all, you. And he's calling you. And so here we are. The question is, will you believe it? The question is, will you receive it? I don't know what you'll do with it right now. I don't know what you'll, maybe you'll take that invitation home and you'll mull on it and you'll try to overcome all your reluctance. And maybe you'll put it off until it's small enough that you can turn it away and avoid that and be like, I'm never going back into that church. That was weird. Maybe. Or maybe right here in this moment, you'll have a change of heart. It's never too late. If there's breath in your lungs, God's call for you, his love for you is ever present, ever powerful. And if there was ever an example of that, think about the thief on the cross. Here's Jesus dying to atone for the sins of the world. He's kind of busy at that moment. Kind of got a lot going on, experiencing a lot of things, spiritually, physically, relationally. His mother, his disciples, abandonment, pain, physical torture. And next to him are just two other guys who deserve to be there. And we're told in Matthew 27 that both of them crucified alongside of him reviled him the same way everybody else was doing. So they're both heaping insults on him. And then something happens in one of them. I think he got a glimpse of the eyes of the savior of the world, myself. The Bible doesn't say that. But Luke 23 says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us while you're at it. (laughs) Very funny. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. God wants you to be right with him today. Doesn't matter how bad you were five minutes ago. Doesn't matter how terrible you've been, how you feel about yourself, what other people say about you, how bad your situation is. There is an ever-present invitation to walk into the arms of God and experience for yourself the breath of his love. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for every person in my hearing. Lord, every single person that needs an experience of this love. God, not just an explanation, not just more understanding, but an experience. God, I pray that you would answer this prayer we've been praying together and that by your spirit, you would strengthen each of us to comprehend and to know the dimensions of your love for us. God, I pray that that would begin to reshape how we see ourselves and how we exist in the world, how we treat other people, 
and ultimately how we bring this good news of your great love for all people to every person that needs to hear it. We love you and we thank you. Do your work in us. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen.